You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Jared Bernstein, a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, joins the Post to talk about the administration's pandemic relief package and President Biden's economic agenda to help the U.S. recover from the challenges of the COVID-19 crisis. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. Our guest this morning is Jared Bernstein, uh, a member of the Council uh, of Economic Advisors and one of the key people who's trying to help President Biden in this first 100 days uh, tackle the, the problem of our, our, our economy and get it growing faster. Jared Bernstein, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks so much for inviting me, David. So I want to start with a question that's very much in the news, and that is where the negotiations stand on a COVID relief and stimulus bill. The headline in the Washington Post this morning says, relief bill poised to pass with or without GOP. The headline online in the New York Times this morning is Democrats press ahead on stimulus as Biden signals openness to changes. So let me ask you, which is it? Are you heading uh, on a reconciliation, Democrats uh, standing uh, with themselves, or is this still a negotiation? Well, I was just thinking that uh, as beleaguered as they are, now the American people have to read about budget process, reconciliation. That's a, that's a very tough ask. Um, I would put it this way, David. President Biden's top legislative priority is passing the American Rescue Plan. Uh, this is a plan that is calibrated to do two things, to do them quickly, to do them effectively and efficiently, more so than has occurred thus far. And those two things are to finally gain control of the virus and distribute and uh, produce the vaccine and to launch a robust, inclusive, racially equitable expansion, economic recovery that reaches everyone, not just the top leg of the K, folks who never missed a paycheck, who might be uh, clipping coupons and doing well in the stock market, but those on the bottom leg of the K who's, who have been disproportionately hit uh, by this pandemic and its uh, economic uh, hardships as well. And I've got lots of evidence of that I'm sure I'll be sharing with you. So that is the president's top priority. Now, Joe Biden, uh, I know you followed his career for years, is congenitally uh, interested in reaching across the aisle, cooperating, acting in a, a bipartisan manner. And for that reason, he has been talking, and we have been talking for weeks to folks from the other side. And in fact, if you listen to Republicans coming out of that meeting uh, earlier this week, you'll hear the same sense of urgency, I think, from many of them that the president has been espousing. The difference is that the magnitude of the plan that Biden has put forth uh, is, uh, again, keyed to meeting the crisis. And that is a, a top priority for him. So let me ask you about some particulars. You said after the meeting that the president had with some top uh, GOP senators that you believe the Republicans are debating in good faith. And I want to ask you specifically, what signs have you seen of that, of a willingness on, on the GOP side to compromise? There are numerous uh, areas where we are in uh, a very similar place in terms of who, need, uh, who needs help and in terms of uh, the urgency, particularly of uh, controlling the virus and distributing the vaccine. Um, we certainly differ 
in terms of the magnitude of the approach. I think our mantra, and, I, and by the way, and I'm happy to get into this, this is rooted in very solid economics, is that the danger is not going too big, it's going too little. So this is a go big or go home, put this, put this virus behind us finally and, and launch this uh, recovery in a robust and reliable way. But if you look at um, virus uh, control, vaccine distribution, if you look at helping businesses, uh, if you look at getting checks to families and helping uh, folks who are struggling, there are similarities in terms of the urgency of those issues, uh, but there's also differences in the magnitude, and we believe our magnitudes are uh, uh, set to meet the challenge. Some areas where we disagree, by the way, is that the Republicans have left out state and local uh, relief. And as I'm sure many of our viewers know, because the Washington Post gets into stuff like this, states have to balance their budgets. Uh, the federal government, uh, in case you haven't noticed, does not. And that means that states are actively laying off educators, firefighters, cops, public health workers. That is completely uh, antithetical to getting our arms around uh, these du this dual crisis. And so the president is committed to that. Um, the GOP leave out uh, the, the child tax credit. This is a refundable credit that is very uh, targeted, very well targeted to low-income people. It will cut the child poverty rate in half. This is, of course, hugely important to the president and vice president. That's left out of the Republican side, and that's important to us. So I think uh, the American people are, are, are looking for areas where there is of some compromise, certainly we in, in the news media have been. One area where there seems to have been some uh, is the formula for stimulus payments. The latest version that we've been reporting um, would send the $1,400 payments that you want to individuals with a lower income cap, individuals earning under 50,000, 2,800 to married couples earning under 100,000. Those those numbers are lower than they were. Is that accurate that you've actually been willing to adjust those numbers as part of a negotiation? I, I think the way Jen Saki put it yesterday is exactly correct. She said something to the effect of um, uh, representing uh, the president's priorities here. Further targeting, which is what we're talking about, more narrowly targeting who gets uh, the checks, it doesn't mean reducing the size of the check. And we're at 1,400 and the president has consistently stood by that number. Um, it means uh, potentially adjustments to uh, the uh, thresholds that you talked about, where the checks kick in and how quickly they phase out. And that's something that has been under discussion. There has not been a conclusion, but the president has shown clearly that he's open to having that discussion. You stressed in this conversation and in other comments over the last week, the, the matter of urgency. And so I need to ask you, with the impeachment trial of the Senate scheduled to get started in, a, in about a week, do you think there's any chance of getting this uh, relief package through the House and Senate in time uh, to, to get it done before you, you, the Senate uh, take, takes up impeachment? You know, that kind of legislative uh, train schedule is, is not the kind of thing I pay attention to, but my uh, gut response is yes. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because whenever I've talked to the president uh, about this, he focuses intensely on the cost of inaction. Uh, 
So David, consider the following. Almost 11 million workers are still unemployed. Four million of them have been unemployed for at least half a year or longer. Here's a number that's really, you know, very concerning uh, to me. I mean, that one is too, but this one is less familiar. More than 2 million women have left the labor force, many because they've been dealing with school closures and childcare. And these job losses have been concentrated among lower paid workers. Tens of millions of Americans are struggling with food insecurity, with eviction, with foreclosure. All of this occurring, as you know, I said earlier, the stock market continues to boom and uh, so many people haven't missed a paycheck. If we delay, more than 4 million people uh, there, there, there could be more than 4 mil, million fewer jobs this year, according to an anal analysis by Moody's.com. That is, they looked at the path of employment growth with or without the plan, and the difference is 4 million jobs this year. It, it, it could take an extra year to get back to full employment. Kids who are out of school could have permanent damage to their lifetime earnings. The cost of inaction are the reason for our urgency. You um, and uh, members of the administration have been focused uh, on issues of racial equity. President Biden announced an executive order last week in which he promised to advance equity for all throughout our federal policies and institutions. And I want to ask you, as you craft this huge $1.9 trillion uh, uh, proposal, may come out less than that. Uh, what specifically are you doing to make sure it advances this goal of racial equity? Yeah, there's some good uh, uh, good points in there, that, and I will get to them. Let me just say, though, because you mentioned the executive order, to me, uh, one of the key aspects of that order was to go right at the deep and systemic problem of exclusionary zoning. Uh, this has been one of the most profound uh, legacies of uh, systemic racism, and the president is acutely aware of that, as is, as is the vice president. So that's going, you know, I think in housing, that's going to be an area where we're particularly uh, focused. Um, in, in the plan, one of the key things that uh, uh, candidate Biden used to talk to us about when we were on, on the phone with him way back when, it seems like 10 years ago, <clears throat> was that if you look at who's getting relief in the business uh, relief plans, the uh, PPP, the uh, Paycheck Act, it tended to go to businesses, to entrepreneurs who could essentially pick up the phone and call a very well-endowed bank. And uh, many entrepreneurs of color were left out. I mean, this is a clearly documented fact. And this is something that the president has continually pushed on. So any business relief in this plan is going to focus on making sure the relief gets to folks who need it most. There are uh, eviction and uh, foreclosure moratoria that are extended in this bill. They disproportionately help persons of color by making sure that unemployment benefits are enhanced to the tune of $400 per week. That disproportionately goes to those, again, on the bottom leg of the K, those who've been disproportionately hurt, and persons of color and communities of color are overrepresented in that space. So we certainly um, do uh, help on the racial equity goal here. But remember, this is a, uh, a temporary kind of uh, relief package. It's not the long-term building back better agenda. And in that agenda, that's where we need to go after the structural factors that underlie systemic racism. 
come to the longer term issues in in just a, a moment. But before we leave the stimulus package, I, I want to ask the kind of gut question that Republicans and I think many Democrats are posing, which is how are we going to pay for spending at this level? One point nine trillion added on to trillions that we've already committed since this terrible pandemic began. Uh, are you concerned that at some point there there begins to be a significant debt overhang problem that would be a problem for the larger economy that you would worry about as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors? Yeah, that's a really important question. And before I was uh, in this job, and I actually had time to do lots of economic research, this was one of my key areas of research, uh, fiscal policy. I was an economist at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which, uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, gets very deep into these issues. Um, uh, so you're talking about the cost of the plan, completely legitimate thing to raise. In fact, important, as I said, I already went through the costs of inaction, and those costs are incredibly steep. They're incredibly lasting. Uh, Long-term unemployment can have permanent damage to people's uh, careers. I talked about the damage to lifetime earnings of kids who miss a year of school. So I just don't want to lose that we have to balance costs of the plan against the cost of inaction. But there's another point here that's a, a bit more technical, but germane, and one that the president mentions in, in almost every speech on this. We are in an environment with very low interest rates. That means that it's not just the cost of the plan that you have to look at, or even the magnitude of the debt, the whole stock of government debt. You have to look not just at the stock, but at the flow. And the flow in this case is the cost of servicing our debt. The cost of servicing our debt is uniquely low. And in fact, it's been falling. So if you're talking about borrowing in order to implement a relief package that meets the costs of inaction as quickly, as deeply, as thoroughly as this plan does, you have to weigh those benefits against that cost. And these investments will more than pay for themselves. That is, we will do more damage to the government's fiscal accounts if we do not act than if we do, given this interest rate environment. Now, and that, you know, that I, I don't want to dismiss your concern at all because I share that same concern. The issue that we have to be mindful of here is not doing too much in a situation like now where, where, where relief is so essential. It's failing to achieve a sustainable budget path when the economy is strong. So here's where you have to look back on the last expansion pre-crisis. In this case, we had an economy that was closing in on full employment and yet our debt was worsening. That to me is very misguided fiscal policy. That is, you want your, uh, uh, you want your fiscal accounts, your debt and your deficit, to be moving in a, uh, in, 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 to, to be consolidating, to be, uh, to be diminishing, in a period when the economy is really strengthening, when it's closing in on full employment, the opposite was occurring. Now, why was the opposite occurring? It's because of the Trump tax cuts broke the linkage between economic growth and revenue flows to the treasury. Okay, this is essential. If you look at revenue flows to the treasury at the end of the last expansion, when the unemployment rate was three and a half percent, they were numerous percentage points, at least two percentage points, which in today's dollars is about $400 billion two percentage points below where they should have been. So by breaking the linkage between economic growth and revenue inflow in strong economies, those tax cuts really undermined our fiscal outlook. 
So I, I, do, I need to, to ask you, uh, when we're past this moment of uh, emergency crisis relief and recovery spending, we can expect from the administration some proposals uh, on tax and fiscal policy that would alter the, the what you described as a misalignment of resources. In other words, would mean some tax increases for wealthier Americans, correct? Yes, I, the, the way the president puts this, and I think it's a really very concise, uh, he's more concise than me, a very concise way of, uh, of getting at the point is that temporary measures like the one we're talking about in the American Rescue Plan, especially in a low interest rate environment, can uh, be deficit financed and you can actually do more for your fiscal uh, outlook than less. That is by avoiding the damage to GDP by making these investments, our debt outlook uh, will be improved. But the president has said permanent measures should be paid for. And that gets more to the Recovery Act and things that are coming. I'm not going to get into uh, the, those policies right now in terms of you know the, the tax agenda, but the pres president, as you correctly pointed out, has cons consistently said that uh, any uh, tax changes would be uh, on the wealthy and folks who've, uh, who've done the best while uh, many have been left behind. Let me ask you about another longer term issue. Uh, Prominent business leaders, Jamie Dimon, uh, one of our leading bankers, Ray Dalio, uh, hedge fund billionaire, many others have said that something needs to be done about the fundamental fairness of the U.S. economy and the way it dis distributes rewards. You've been writing about that issue for many years. I want to ask you about the administration's ideas about making this a fairer economy. Again, we're in the middle of a crisis now, but are, are you spending some time thinking about ways to, to, to go at the basics so working class, middle class Americans feel they're getting a, a better deal? I'm really glad you asked that because the answer is a hard yes. And it's uh, not just me, but so many of my colleagues on our team, my colleague on the uh, Council of Economic Advisors, uh, Heather Boucher, uh, has uh, made a lifetime career of thinking about these issues, particularly in uh, in the space of gender equality. So the answer is is very much yes. And the way I would put this, it, it, you know, I, I go back pretty far with uh, with President Biden, and the very first time I talked to him, uh, we sat down. Not not when he was a senator, but when he was um, when he was the incoming vice president. I went out to Delaware and I sat down and talked. The very first thing he said to me is he had seen something I'd written that looked at the trend growth rate in productivity, which is sort of like the economic, uh, kind of like how fast is the economic pie growing and compared to the median earnings, uh, the earnings of the typical worker. And you saw essentially that the, the pie was getting bigger while people in the middle were getting smaller slices. And you know he pointed that graph, which I had made, and essentially said, you know, I want you to be my chief economist to help me work on this. Uh, and then if uh, he and, and President Obama ran twice on dealing with these issues, and they actually did a lot to help repair uh, the kind of policy architecture that's uh, broken down in terms of connecting people to growth. Uh, so, so that's key to his agenda and, and to Vice President Harris's as well. How do you do that? Well, 
one of the most important ways is you help people get reattached to the job market. Right now, and I went through these numbers before, we have about 11 million people who are unemployed. We have a, a black unemployment rate that's almost 10%. This relief package is not only about providing people the fiscal relief they need, it's about getting to the other side of the crisis. The economy will not get back on track until we control the virus and effectively distribute the vaccine. Then we can be into a more robust, uh, lasting expansion, but that's not enough. Simply getting back to where, where we were is too low a bar for the Biden administration. We have to make sure that workers in the manufacturing have a fair shake in globalization and in, uh, in, in, in trade competition. We have to make sure that uh, those who've been victims of discrimination, of exclusionary zoning, have a, have a chance to get them and their families into the neighborhoods where they want to live, to be able to access the education that's gonna provide the opportunity to help close that gap, raising the minimum wage, okay? This is a key uh, policy to chip away at income inequality, standing up a child care sector, which has never really existed in this country, an affordable child care sector. So women who are uh, obviously uh, disproportionately caretakers can pursue their economic goals and realize their potential. All of these are parts of this glue to reconnect overall economic growth and much more broadly shared racially equitable prosperity. Jared Bernstein, we promised you we'd keep our conversation at 20 minutes so you could get back to work uh, fixing the economy. We want to thank you for coming and talking about both the short-term issues uh, of recovery and the longer-term issues of, of fairness and how to, how to structure economic growth. So, Jared, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, David. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.